Hi, and welcome to another episode of Marriage on a Tightrope. I'm Katie. I'm Alan. And we're still married. We are super excited to share this episode with you. We interviewed Anthony Magnabosco, and if you don't know him already, he is a street epistemologist. Do you want to explain that, Alan, a little bit? Yeah, I mean, Anthony uh, will will talk a lot about street epistemology in this episode, of course, but I found his videos a little over a year ago on his YouTube channel, and he... He uh, has a fun hobby where he sits or actually stands in a park or, or a public setting like a university with uh, a camera both mounted on his chest and on a nearby structure. And he asks people to, to talk to him for four minutes, usually goes longer, uh, and he asks them questions. So epistemology is the study of identifying truth and how you uh, have come to believe something is true. As a street epistemologist, he asks questions to get to the root of why people believe what they believe. And this may seem a little bit uh, different because in the past, we've always interviewed people who were in a mixed faith marriage, therapists who had who had good information for us. But today it's a little bit different because we asked him to give us some examples of things that we can do in our regular everyday conversation between a husband and wife and how to ask the right questions in order to understand each other one each other better. We are extremely interested and we'll just let the vacuum play out in the background. <laughs> We're extremely interested in hearing your feedback from from this episode because it is a very different approach, very different guest than we've ever had before. He literally has no history with uh, the LDS church. So never has been a member, never likely will be a member. <laughs> I actually think it's a really refreshing, different episode. It is. And I think I was a little nervous going into it. But once we got into it, it was actually extremely eye-opening, very interesting. He is just one of the nicest guys ever. And we really enjoyed this. So hopefully you'll find value in it and you'll enjoy something a little bit different from us today. Absolutely. No more updates, no more news. We'll have a normal episode with a bunch of announcements coming up here pretty soon. But other than that, enjoy the episode. All right, now let's get to our exciting guests that we're excited to have on. Have I mentioned that we're excited? We're excited. We're excited. <laughs> Welcome to Marriage in a Tightrope, Anthony Magnabosco. Hello. How are you both doing? Nice to be here tonight. Yeah, we're doing we're doing good. We're doing yeah. good. Anthony, you know what's funny is um someone from the podcast called us and said, I have a great idea for someone you should interview. And That's we right. and he didn't know this was on Sunday. He didn't know that we had already set this up with you. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. so oh, he was cool. he was geeked when we told him that we already had this set up and we were wanting to talk to you anyway. Yes. Oh, that's so sweet. That's that's always better. Like um like there are some shows that I want to be on, but I always think it would be weird to invite myself <laughs> and it's so much better if, if there's somebody who's familiar with what I do and then they reach out to these people, you know, podcasters or whatever and say, Hey, bring this guy on. So I'm really appreciative that they, that they reached out to you. But yeah, we've been planning this for a few months now, even before, before the holidays, I think it was, yeah. even, wasn't it? That's when we first, that's when we first yeah. connected, which is awesome. Yeah. Uh, a, a number of people, you know, when you look at a podcast, you can see the different episode titles. I'm sure that a number of our, of our listeners will recognize your name. I would venture to say that most of our listeners won't recognize your name. Uh, they may or may not be familiar with uh, street epistemology, which is uh, often connected to your name. But before mm -hmm. we get into uh, what uh, hobbies you're in, like street epistemology <laughs> and the, the basic 
uh, main topic of this episode of the podcast. We'd love to learn more about you. We purposefully, before we started recording, didn't get much further than what city do you live in. So <laughs> right. uh, yeah. tell us a little bit about yourself and just give us that bio of, you know, yeah. anywhere from 50 seconds to 60 minutes, you can tell us about yourself. Absolutely. Well, I'm actually, I think I'd be a little happy if many people didn't recognize my name or what it was that you were bringing me on here to discuss, because we're trying to introduce more people to what it is we do in street epistemology. And I've been active in it for probably going on eight years now, but a little bit about myself. I'm married. I have two kids. Uh, we, I guess you could say are non-believers. I don't like to speak for my wife or my kids. You'd have to probably ask them, but sure. we don't go to church. We don't pray to any gods. Um, I am an unabashed activist and atheist, uh, agnostic atheist, I suppose, to be specific. I was raised in a Christian Catholic household and uh, pretty far removed from from the LDS church. I, I, I think I remember being a teenager or something and maybe seeing commercials about the <laughs> Church of Jesus Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The more that that That's what the commercials first... used to say when, they, when you were a kid. Oh, back in the day. I'm, talk, I'm thinking like maybe the, the late 80s or early 90s. That's right, sort of when right. I, that, that, that religion sort of crossed my radar. But I was always a skeptical kid. I always questioned the, the beliefs that I was being raised with. Nothing bad happened to me. I, I don't have a vendetta against the church or I'm trying to get back at somebody or I want to sin. I just was never convinced that it was true. Sure. And, but I was surrounded by people who did. Mm. And I was always confused. Like how, how can all these people who are very good, loving people, they treat me, they treat me well. How can they believe this? I just didn't understand how they made the connection. And I didn't really think too much of it until I started dating, getting, actually I had a, I had a relationship that ended because I wasn't religious and that was a little bit unnerving. Like, Oh wow, sure, she's really sure. serious about this. She wants to raise kids and teach them the stuff. I definitely don't want to do that. So my lack of belief, I suppose my, my atheism was shaping how I was navigating the world and seeking a mate and then raising kids uh, to the point where I wanted to do something. I wanted to help other people have better conversations because I was having horrible ones. And that's what led me to street epistemology, essentially. Very cool. So your wife, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. I'm going to dig a little bit more personal. <laughs> and you can, if you want to be this, this enigmatic mystery and not answer some of the personal <laughs> questions, that's fine. But like, so I, I imagine that faith didn't play a role in you and your wife's relationship. That wasn't a conflict. And even simpler than that, how did you guys meet? How did that connection happen? Yeah. We met at a bar that played country and Western music, both kinds. <laughs> and we just started dating. Um, it wasn't real. I think we, we even started planning like, okay, we're going to get married. Where should we get married? Are you really religious? No, nah, I'm not really religious either. We can kind of detect that we weren't religious. We didn't really maybe compare notes as carefully as maybe some people did, but it just wasn't important to us. And uh, we ended up getting married in a chapel in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada with a, with a humanist celebrant. Looking back, I didn't even realize, oh, that's a humanist. We, we just said, listen, we're not religious. We're kind of looking for a very friendly, welcoming kind of message. And then uh, that was about a year ago. I, I played the, the, the VHS tape of our, of our wedding ceremony. <laughs> and I was listening, I was listening to, the, to the minister talk. And I, th I was thinking, He's a humanist. So uh, if I were to get married again, that probably would be this, the, the person that I would bring in to actually conduct the ceremony. But 
yeah, religion just really isn't a big part of our lives. Um, but we're still good, loving people. We love our kids. We had a dog. We love the dog. We take care of our lawn. Um, we're leading very healthy, loving, successful lives without religion. And I, I would imagine that probably half of your listeners, maybe, uh, maybe more, I suppose, can, can recognize that that can be done. You don't have to have a religion, it seems. Right. Um, th- th- yeah. I don't know if I could, you want me to expand on that or not? Well, well, I was going to say, why don't we talk a little bit about what, because I'm interested in how you got into street epistemology mm-hmm. and why don't you give us like an, what is it? Yeah. yeah, what is it? Give us an introduction to what it is sure. and then how did you get into it? Because if you're not like a religious person, it would seem unnatural to like, just want to go and talk to people about their religion. Really? Oh, wow. I don't, oh, I don't. That- it's yeah, so no, interesting no, so that you would is, say that. This is why, okay, I'm going to pull the curtains back a little bit, both for you, okay. Anthony, and for the, for the listeners. Mm-hmm. This is why I personally am so excited for, for this conversation that we're going to have today, because it's so out of the box from what we usually talk about. Yeah. And just from your introduction, most of our listeners are going to recognize that you are completely separate from, as you mentioned, the, the LDS church. It's, it's not, hasn't been on your radar. You've had a few conversations, which I've watched and loved, by the way. Uh, with some LDS folks, but I think it's really healthy and very, I I don't know. It's very exciting to kind of hear a voice outside of your own four walls Mm -hmm. Um, within the LDS, even the mixed faith marriage community. There's a lot of other thoughts that individuals like myself who has stepped away, they'll learn new things and have new thoughts, but a lot of the same ideas kind of circulate. We talked about Noah Rochetta before we started um, recording. And I was Mm -hmm. like, for a split second, I, I thought, I can't believe he doesn't know who Noah Rochette is. And then I realized I'm talking to someone completely outside yes. of our normal circles. Yeah. And that's why, I think, but that's why I think that this back and forth can be really helpful for us, but also people listening, because we'll probably touch on some new subjects. And I'm, I'm, I do a lot of interviews. And I was actually telling my wife before I, before I came, down, came and sit, sat in my office to do this one that I'm really looking forward to this one because it's this husband and wife dynamic and one believes and one doesn't. And uh, yeah, I think we'll maybe uncover some new ground here. Yeah, for sure. So, oh yeah. So back to your, thank you, Katie. For yeah. The question. Why don't you go question. ahead and like yeah. introduce, introduce that concept. Yeah. Yeah. So I think a lot of people might get the impression that in order to do street epistemology, you have to go out and initiate talks with people. And that, that is, that is a common misconception. Now, most of the visible examples that are out there are of people doing that. And that's what I do. I, I put on a camera, I go to a park or a university and ask people if they have five minutes to talk about a deeply held belief being in Texas, they often pick religion, but I'll talk about all different sorts of claims. I'll even talk with people that don't believe in any gods and try to challenge them respectfully in the same way. But, I'm wondering, though, if maybe part of your confusion is, I wonder maybe if you have the impression of, well, in order to talk about religion, you must be advocating for it. And that's not usually, that's not really the approach that I'm coming from. I'm interested in, well, why do you believe it? And how did you conclude that it's true? So I'm not actually telling anybody anything. I try to listen and then repeat back what I'm hearing and then ask probing questions to drive to what's really propping it all up. Hmm. And I think that's a that's a distinct difference than what you might see with missionaries who go to they travel and they, they're gone for two years or they're gone for eighteen months uh, if they're female I think is the is the duration there but yeah. yeah so I'm learning more about the LDS Church than I than I ever have before I think mainly because I'm it seems like I'm running into more people who are from the LDS Church mm. not exactly sure but yeah it's it's fun so so I don't go 
I don't uh, go out to promote a specific worldview. I like to challenge people about how they concluded that their worldview is true. And if given the chance, sometimes people want to know where I stand on their claim and I'm more than willing to share my position with them. Now, for the non-believers in your audience listening, you might realize that when you disclose or if you ever disclose that you don't believe it could, it could cause some defensiveness of the people that you're speaking with that do believe. Mm-hmm. So that's a little right. bit of a challenge finding that right balance of respectful questioning to get to the foundation of a person's belief, but not causing a person to become too, too guarded because maybe you fundamentally disagree on some of the most biggest, the, the biggest questions of life. Right. So give us, if you could, just to make it as clear as possible for mm-hmm. Katie and for the others, give us like a two sentence definition of street epistemology mm. or epistemology in general. That's going to be a challenge. Well, epistemology is the study of knowledge and street epistemology is different. I think it's less, it's less academic and more rogue street gritty we're just kind of figuring out what this is. But essentially, street epistemology is where you use questions to explore how the person that you're speaking with arrived at their conclusion and became convinced themselves, not to have them convince you in the process necessarily. Because sometimes I think theists might might feel a little defensive, like, oh, I need to convince this person that this is true. When most people who practice street epistemology, I know this is going on way longer than two seconds. No, no this, is good. this is good. But I think mo- most people who practice street epistemology are interested in finding out how the person that they're speaking with concluded that it's true and, and approach it with a willingness to actually accept it. If it seems like they use good reasons and built it on a solid foundation, a reliable epistemology or a reliable methodology, the method when we're using street epistemology, we're really interested in how you determine that your reasons justify being really confident that what you think is true is really true. So you may notice like lots of, and your audience probably notices, notices this as well. I think that we tend to argue about the doctrine, your verse, the, the, you're believing that because of this verse. Well, there's this other verse that completely contradicts it. And then we'll talk for hours about contradictions when the theist may not even believe it because there's possible contradictions in the book. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes we're, we're assuming that the person that we're speaking with will find the reason that we found Mormonism, for example, unbelievable. If we just explain to them why we found it unbelievable, they'll also find it unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And you can very often be talking past each other when you do that. Right. It's really important right. to figure out why they think it's true. Yeah. I, you said that as a, I mean, as a kid, you always questioned or you had questions, you know, why you grew up the way you did a Christian Catholic home, um, why you did things, um, the way you did. So is that kind of what has sparked your interest into getting into something like this? Um, no, I don't think that was really the genesis of it. I mean, and if so, what, what was, yeah. Cause when I was a kid, I just, I, I question it, but I never let anyone know that I was questioning it. And then when you get older and you start disclosing to people that you're questioning it and you see the reactions or even worse, you jeopardize the relationships that you care about because you're using a ham handed, aggressive, ineffective approach with the loved ones in your life. And then when you start losing those relationships, it dawns on you. Oh my gosh, what am I doing here? Why am I arguing with people? This isn't effective. 
And that's when I discovered a book called A Manual for Creating Atheists mm. that talks about street epistemology. So the genesis of this approach started in atheism, which had pros and cons. I mean, for myself, I was looking for better ways to talk to theists. The cons are, I think today, is that we're recognizing the effectiveness of this tool, but it doesn't need to be limited to just atheists. So the fact that it started in atheism, I think, is actually holding us back from introducing it to other people who I think, even you, Katie, I think could benefit from learning this approach. Mm -hmm. When your husband spouts off and says something, you could, instead of giving him a fact that shows that he's wrong, you might start asking him questions to challenge why he thinks he's right. Well, this is actually what happens because before I knew who you were, he would, he would ask me question after question, you know, to get to the root of how, what I was feeling, what I thought uh, about church doctrine. And then I was introduced to you by him and I called him out on it. <laughs> I said, I don't epistemologize don't you me. Epistemologize <laughs> me. I know uh, what you're doing. I know exactly what you're doing. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah, I, I have heard of some people reporting that their spouse or their friend or their coworker or somebody online notices that they're asking questions that you might find in SE videos. Mm -hmm. And they don't like it. But they're they're um perturbed by it, maybe or something, they're noticing it. Let's just put it that way. They're yeah. noticing that something's different about the interaction. Yeah. And I'm always a little amused. Like I, I'm amused. I understand why it might get your attention because, oh, he's not arguing with me. He's asking me, he's really listening. He's asking me questions. And, and maybe I'm thinking about this a little bit more than I normally would have. Mm -hmm. so, so there is something different about the approach and it can make some people defensive, I think, mm -hmm. if they understand the potential implications of participating in the talk. Yeah. But I, I get it. It could be a little awkward so, too. Yeah. It could be a little awkward asking questions and maybe writing stuff down. And can I get your definition of that? How sure are you that that's true? It could be a little awkward. It could be a little awkward and maybe even wrote kind of scripted a little bit. Yeah. But we're, you know, the big, the biggest impact of being effective at street epistemology, I think is to, to go where your partner takes you and try not to drive them to a conclusion. Mm. and be open to, to believing what they're telling you. Mm. And I think if you go, if you go in it with those two things, you're going to probably be pretty effective at it. And I think there's other things that your conversation partner can do. And maybe we can get into that, but sure. And I think before a kind of epistemology in the setting of a marriage, like to uh, chat mm. a, just a little bit more about just the concept in general, um, particularly, for example, uh, I would ask you what would a successful session or interview look like mm. you sit down with somebody you talk to them at the end of it you go man that was awesome what what gets you going about i mean is it when you're like oh they i just proved them wrong and i'm setting you up to hopefully dispel some of the misconceptions but yeah what is a successful um session of epistemology look like i think the important thing here is to remember that se i'll abbreviate street epistemology to se it's a tool that anybody can wield. So some people could see success as I want to see a lowering of confidence. I want to see a lowering of confidence in my spouse's belief that God is real. Somebody could use that tool with that goal. Okay. I try not to, maybe when I first started off doing this, I thought, well, the book says you can make atheists out of this and you use this approach. So I want to see some progress. But these days, 
my idea of a success is one thing that you said at the start there, me thinking after the conversation, wow, that was a great talk. They really seem to be thinking or maybe getting feedback from the person that I was questioning in a respectful manner, mm-hmm. yet probing and driving to the foundation. Maybe they self-reported something like, you asked really good questions and these are things that I've never considered before. So you've given me something to think about and I really appreciate that you did that. And that's not like a dream scenario. That's almost, that's almost always what happens when I use this approach. If I can set my ego aside and, and set aside the idea of winning or trapping or crushing my opponent. Mm -hmm. If you strive for clarity, if you strive for understanding and you have an honest and open interlocutor an honest and open conversation partner, and you use this approach, you're both going to probably feel like you came out ahead on it. And that's that I think is my goal these days, where we both feel like we've learned something, we have a better understanding of the person's claim, and maybe there's an eagerness or, or a desire to meet again at some point so we can keep working through it. Mm-hmm. I, w- I would call those successes. And there's probably a good five or 10 things more that I would say on there. A lowering of confidence on a belief that may not necessarily be true. I, yeah, I, I think that that would be useful, but it's not always my goal. Right. We can probably switch into the, in a mixed faith marriage setting, what place does street epistemology or epistemological conversation have spousal Mm -hmm. epistemology, as I said in the email that I sent over, what place does that have? Because you mentioned it even outside of the context of marriage, the person that you're talking to and asking questions knows where you stand. It it can, they they can be defensive pretty quickly. Um, also completely, I mean, on my side, it's very hard to not try to drive the conversation one way or the other. Yeah. Uh, for those that are listening, I'll kind of, as a sidebar, this episode may feel like a trap in some way to someone, um, that is on the believing side to say, now, hold on a second. We're talking about something that spawned from the book, how to create Mm -hmm. atheists. Mm-hmm. This is really concerning to me. I'm not really comfortable with this. Uh, that That's kind of why we are anxious, anxiously excited to have the conversation because it is a little bit different. And, and I think if we can help people, I've had adverse reactions from Katie. I'm rambling, but it's okay. <laughs> I've had adverse reactions from Katie when, when I've used questions specifically, um, and I likely didn't do it in the best, the best way or my, let my emotions get the best mm. of me or those types of things. But there, there has to be some good lessons learned in the good practice of epistemology versus a bad practice of epistemology. Yeah. Well, I think, I think a core requirement to using this approach, and I'm not the rule maker of what street epistemology is. I just happened to stumble across it early on, record videos they gained in popularity and they seem to somewhat influence the community a little bit, but I, I, I'm not the arbiter of what it is. So just to be clear, but I do think that consent is really important that before you start asking your spouse questions about their religion, for example, or in reverse, why don't you believe, or even other non-religious questions, this isn't exclusively for interrogating respectfully religious claims. I hope we're clear on that, Right. but make sure that your spouse is a willing participant in it. You can even give them a heads up and say, I listened to this great podcast, Marriage on a Tightrope. They were talking about street epistemology. And it's a different way of talking about the beliefs that we hold. Would you be okay if I asked you some questions? I've been watching a few videos 
And this guy was going on about it. And I'm a little curious to see if it, it might improve our conversations. And it may result in you taking another look at your belief, maybe start to question, maybe start to doubt. Would you allow me to ask you those questions? So you can just lay all your cards out on the table. You don't have to be surreptitious about this. Right. You really don't. But I, I get it. The book, the book title is Disarming. The videos that you watch, half the videos probably out there are of atheists using this with theists. So your your theistic audience should be on their toes when they're listening to this because right. it can be extremely effective for atheists to use it with theists. All that being said, though, this is an equal opportunity tool in my view. And that's why I'm so eager to talk to your audience because I think I can actually hit a lot of theists here. This could be really useful for the theistic listener who's going to go to work and their boss the next day may make some sort of claim about the new healthcare system at work or a big project that you're working on. You can use this tool for other things. Mm -hmm. So there's value in it. So let's table the religious side of it then for just a minute. Yeah. What are some common everyday, maybe not, maybe not everyday, I won't box you in that much, but what are some common topics that really you have found to be helpful um, if street epistemology is engaged that are outside of religion. So I, I don't think I've discovered a topic where it can't be helpful. Uh, we've I, even used SE on why you should or shouldn't use SE. <laughs> well, we turned the tool on ourselves and I've used this with atheists who were a hundred percent sure there's no God. And three minutes later, well, that's an exaggeration. 13 minutes later, they're decreasing their confidence in their claim that there's no God. Right. But yes, it can be used for non-religious claims. I've used it on political claims, guns on campus, um, abortion, although may, may, maybe many people here would think that that's a religious claim. Um, it seems, it's really interesting. There are so many beliefs that we hold that fundamentally it kind of comes down to the religious moral outlook that you have. So my personal preference is to talk about religious claims because it affects sure. all sorts of other sure. things. But I've talked about all, this, all sorts of stuff. Uh, lighting sage to ward off ghosts or whether um, the career that I'm interested in studying at this school is actually the best one for me. So it's it's a, it seems like it's an extremely versatile tool. A conversation we had with our 11 year old son is coming to mind from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he was listening. Katie and I were sitting on the couch in the living room and uh, we heard him on his iPad, iPod rather. We're not yeah. that rich. We heard him on his iPod and he said, or we could hear a video he's watching and it said the F word. And we called him into the room, said, why are you, why are you listening to that? Hmm. And he goes, well, I didn't know he was going to swear. I'm like, okay, well, you know, turn it off. And he says, there's not anything. It's not even like swearing isn't even that bad anyway. Hmm. There's a claim. There's a claim. And so we, we turned to him and said, well, why, what is wrong with swearing? Hmm. And right when I asked that, we both, <laughs> looked at each other like, what, what is wrong with swearing? Yes. You've perfectly illustrated the, the beauty of asking questions because you, it, it, it calls to attention the biases that we have when we approach these situations, mm -hmm. right? We just think, oh, swearing is wrong. Well, when, when's the last time I actually took a few seconds to think about that? Who are we harming? Yes, we might insult some people, but why are they insulted? Like, what's the whole genesis of this? And uh, I was I was really hoping that you would say, my son asked me, why do you think swearing's wrong, Dad? But that's, I wish that's he was good. That you still end up all learning as a result of that. Right. Yeah. So here's the conclusion. Um, it's not actually quite concluded. It's still in progress. But we turned to him and you said, you know what? Why don't you 
over the next uh, couple of weeks, we're going to do it at the beginning of February. Why don't you over the next couple of weeks, and we'll remind you, why don't you research why, um, research mm. cursing yeah. and, mm. and specifically cursing in children. And what do scientists say about it? What do social psychologists say about it? Um, just, you can go and you can present whatever you find to the family and we'll talk about it and we'll ask questions mm. about it and, and see, see what comes of it. So it's, that's good. It's an interesting, yeah. Having a discussion about it can be really useful. I might ask the question of all three of you, what is it about a word that qualifies it as a swear word? How would you define swear word? What's the criteria? And how did you, how did you determine that that's, that's, uh, that's a good rule of thumb to use when you're evaluating words and why, why should we let words impact us in the way that maybe a swear word would? So what you'll notice probably in street epistemology in the videos or even just this little example that we've had is that we try, we really try to look at the beliefs that we have in a critical eye and try not to let our emotions and our biases get in the way, but really figure it out together. How can we, you know, why are we, why are we so upset when we hear this particular utterance of, of sound waves? Why, why is this upsetting right, us? Right. But yeah. There could be uh, there's value in that. There's value in these discussions. Yeah, for sure. I know that we're not going to spend 20 minutes talking about cursing, but <laughs> darn. No. I, one of that my funny initial... because um, even at a young age, um, we, we gave our kids permission to curse because they would say uh, Johnny at school said the S word. I'm thinking, what's the S word or something? <laughs> uh, you can beep that out if you want. And, and they fine. say, Oh, it's stupid. He said stupid. I thought that's not a, and then it got me thinking, well, what are curse words and all this stuff? But yeah, let's right. not dwell on that. <laughs> no, but I, I think that was like a, a little two question uh, way of participating in SE. What you just what you just did here. What what we didn't want to do on this podcast, and what we won't do, is a religious SE. Like that's not the purpose of this yeah. podcast. There, there are plenty of video examples of people doing that. I don't see sure. the need to to challenge anyone about their views. If you want to see SE in action on religious claims, there's well, there's hundreds of videos on my channel, and then there are other people uploading stuff too. For sure. I, I do have a question. Um, like if Alan and I were to get into it and I would ask him questions, could you give us some examples, especially in a marriage, of some good leading questions you can ask to each other uh, without being without it being causing like defensiveness or I mean are there certain questions that yeah. are better to ask than others, I guess? I would try to avoid leading anybody anywhere with your questions. So you might want to just run the question through your mind yourself before you, you ask it to see, is, is this pushing her to a direction or her or him to a, to a specific view or direction? Or is it, um, is it bringing clarity to the situation? So that might be one of the first things that you as a questioner can do a double check before you even ask the question and then pay really close attention to the reaction. Did the person seem to get defensive? Did they look at their phone? Are they, are they thinking about something else entirely? Maybe they're not invested in the, in the conversation. You really have to pay attention to the venue that you're in, to all the distractions around you. Are the kids asleep? Is this the best time to have this talk? So there, there's a lot, I suppose, that goes into it before you even ask the questions. But you should try to ask questions that are really short and simple. Sometimes even, even my own questions, I think even in the video that I uploaded where I was using street epistemology with some missionaries, I think at one point they were confused by what I asked. 
And I was really grateful that they expressed their confusion so that I can simplify it because I was even confused. I don't even know if I could have, could have repeated the question that I wanted to ask. So keep your questions really straightforward and simple. Try to leave the emotion out of it and then pay attention to your conversation partner, your spouse, whatever, and, and see if you're making them uncomfortable to there's a fine line between uneasiness and uncomfortableness. And I think a certain amount of uneasiness with these questions can be useful because they may be questions a person has never heard before. So yeah, you're going to be, you're going to be a little uneasy, but you don't want to keep pushing to the point where they're becoming uncomfortable. Um, irate. They're starting to feel trapped or piled upon. So really be paying attention to how your, how your spouse is behaving when you're asking these questions and then maybe encourage them to ask you the same questions back on claims that you make. So you can even be approaching it as, Hey, I'd like to ask you these questions. You know, afterwards we'll talk about the questions that I asked and then maybe you can ask me better ones or the same questions that I asked you before. And you can make it a back and forth. It doesn't have to be this one way directed thing for the atheist to use with their theistic spouse. It doesn't have to be that way. I would love for you to sit down and ask me a bunch of questions sometime. Katie. Oh, me. <laughs> yeah, no one, no one can see me looking at you yeah. instead of Anthony. Um, Another thing you could try too is sometimes you, you might be at a loss for what question to ask. And you can even say, okay, so it seems like faith is a big part of this. And I understand how you acquired this belief and some of the things that you've been questioning over the years. And now I'm not exactly sure what to ask you. Do you want to, do you, is there a question that you were thinking that I was going to ask that I didn't, that you'd like me to? I'd be happy to ask that (laughs) So you can just really be sort of, it's a hand-holding exercise. Oh yeah, maybe. I mean, it depends on how open and trusting your relationship is, but yeah, I mean, there might be questions that the the person that you're speaking with thought for sure you were going to ask, but didn't. And now they're kind of wondering why you didn't. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, you, you can make this a back and forth two way and, and try to look at it as a, as a joint ex- exploration of our beliefs together. If you approach it that way and not a, not an interrogation of like, I'm interviewing you and this is this one-on-one directed thing and you have to answer all my questions. Approaching it from that point of view is, is going to probably not work out very well. Right. Well, I have to give a good and a, well, it, it was, it was a bad example. And then it turned into a good example. Um, we were driving home from, I think at California and Alan started asking me, we hadn't talked about the God thing. I didn't, I didn't know if Alan still believed in God. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, he started to ask me questions about my faith in God. Yeah. And immediately, I mean, after just like what, 10 minutes, it went very sour because I felt like he was interrogating me and I thought that he was trying to prove me wrong. Whatever I, whatever I had to say, he was going to prove me wrong. Mm -hmm. And then he stopped the conversation. He said, you know, I'm sorry. I, I really should not have gone down this line of questioning. Then we opened it up so that it was more conversational. I asked him questions. He asked me questions and it turned out much better than, than it had started. But to your point, uh, I mean, it's important for a, a back and forth to occur. And then that just takes away some of the defensiveness that I felt for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think the back and forth is really critical and it's something that you don't normally see when you watch YouTube videos of street epistemology, because the, the majority of the videos that are out there are somebody initiating talks, asking a whole bunch of questions and then wrapping it up. Mm. And, and 
I'll admit that's what you see on my channel. Now there are some times where my, my interlocutor will ask me questions in return and I'll reciprocate and, and that type of thing. But always in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I got to keep this video short. I got to keep this video short. Mm-hmm. But when you're, when you're using this approach with a loved one, mm-hmm. you have to, you have to slow it way down. Mm-hmm. Maybe ask two questions in a 30 minute conversation mm-hmm. and spend the rest of the time listening and under, you know, understanding what they're saying and you know, not driving too deep, too fast. I think is really important if you cherish the relationship mm-hmm. because you can sour it really quickly. Absolutely. To the point where maybe where your spouse never wants to talk about it again. And that would be really, that would be a crime if that happened, I think. Right. So I'm, I want to tell you, Anthony, one of our goals on the, our podcast and what we encourage our listeners to do. Cause I think I want to hear what you think. If it's, if it's goes against kind of the spirit of, of SE. But one thing that we, that we say is uh, mixed faith marriage works when you stop focusing on what's true and false and you start focusing more on what works for you versus what doesn't work for you. Mm. It's much easier for me to support Katie, for example, and her desire to participate in, in church every Sunday when she explains to me that I feel I feel connected to my community. This is how I, f- I feel service to my God is by going and participating at church. Yeah. Now, yes, God was mentioned and that in and of itself is a truth claim, but it's more about what provides value to her and whether it's true or not, it's not really my chief concern. Where does that fit in with, with SE or does it not? I don't know. What do you think about that? That is a fantastic question. And it's the, the heart of the challenges that we tend to run into when we're using SE is that we notice that some people seem to not value the accuracy of their beliefs or the truth of their beliefs, maybe, as much as they value what works for them or the benefit they get or the comfort or the happiness, the community. So my question to you, though, is why can't you have both? Can you still have a marriage or a relationship or a friendship where you do value true things and yet still find ways to, to have community and understanding and happiness and all those, all the great things that can come with religion? I don't think you necessarily have to put those on the back burner if you decide, you know what, it's really important for me to, to hold as many true beliefs as possible. And if I can't justify a belief, I'm going to just kick it to the curb. I think there's, I think there could really be a balance there, but I'm married myself. I understand the importance of getting along and, and living a harmonious lifestyle with the people that you love and you're raising kids and they're looking to you for guidance. But I think one of the most important things that we can teach our kids is that it's important to strive to believe as many true things as possible, even though it could be costly. Now, if the cost of that is your marriage and you have to consider the impact and on your kids and all this other stuff, then you might want to wait it out. You might want to wait until they're older or something along those lines. I don't know what the happy medium is, but hopefully it's not an either or situation that you can actually find some, some, some balance and say, let's strive to believe as many true things as possible and still have all the benefit that we currently get from this particular religion, maybe, for example. Hmm. 
Interesting. What do you think about that, Katie? Anything? I don't know. <laughs> what do you think oh, about that? Look, that? she's giving you. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you putting it on me right now? No, like what? So what I heard his, what I just heard, and if I was to translate this into mixed faith marriage language, yeah. I would use the word nuance. Yeah. Where, um, do you feel like we have in a way, and many couples that we've talked to have found a balance of value versus truth, when to engage that, when not to engage it. Um, again, I think the, the interesting part of it is that what you just said, Anthony, could the believer could be saying, yeah, when is my spouse going to just admit that I'm right. And that's exactly, this I was is gonna, I, I'm glad you opened that door for me. Cause I wanted to make a distinction that theists think that they have the truth. Right. And so and <laughs> non-believers think that, well, the honest position is to say, well, I don't actually know what's happening out there. And that is actually the most truthful response that you can give. So yes, people are approaching it from, I think many people will think that they have the truth, whether you're a theist or not. And that disconnect even, but what, what's the, what's the, the common denominator there is that you both, I think, you think that you have the truth and I think that you value the truth. Just exactly what the truth is, you, that's where the disagreement is. So I, it doesn't really even have to be a trade-off to say, to say like, I have to be an atheist in order to live a, a more truthful and meaningful life. I'm not exactly saying that. Well, this is a, it's a very, a mixed faith marriage is a very interesting theme or a yeah. group to, to, to talk about SE because it's all the listeners that are listening here have made the choice to, despite the differences of belief or putting in a way of truth, despite, despite the different conclusions of what the truth is, they're going to stay together anyway. And some couples find that they just should ignore truth claims altogether. Yeah. I think where we have found most success is that if Katie wants to engage in a truth claim conversation, she's going to initiate that. I learned pretty early on that pushing it, pushing it, pushing it, it's just, it's not healthy. She mm -hmm. has to want to talk about it. And now it's even flipped to just today. Katie sent me an article uh, by a leader in our church and it's all about how to identify truth and where not mm -hmm. to identify truth. And she said, what do you think about this? And it's flipped so much from the beginning that I said, I don't think that I should tell you what I think about this. <laughs> huh. Well, why not? Worried about. I think that I've seen where those conversations go. It starts mm -hmm. with, it starts with very good intentions. Of, I really appreciate her asking me what I think. She opened the door. She's asking for feedback. She initiated it. Like Yet I said, you still didn't want to give her feedback. Right. And so I said, I kind of flipped it back and I said, well, based on our past conversations about this topic, I would really, I really think it would be a more successful conversation if you told me what you thought first. <laughs> okay. I think, I mean, for, for sure, Alan has to tread more lightly because I get very emotional. I definitely let the emotions 
and the fact of tradition. And, um, th- I mean, there's a lot of factors, like I'm a people pleaser. And so like, I'm re- you know, what would, what would my parents think and all these things. So I definitely let that influence the way I respond or sometimes ask, ask my own questions mm-hmm. to him. But, um, in this case, to be fair, um, I felt similar to you. Yeah. She shared, she shared a little bit about, you know, um, he says this, but, and and again, this is the interesting part of our podcast is that we don't get into specifics of truth claims. (laughs) Yeah, no, I understand it could be a, it could be a minefield. There's certain topics that you just don't talk about with your spouses because you understand, Oh, that's just going to open up a can of worms. We're going to bed in an hour. Do I really want to have this battle? And then other distractions happen. I wrote a blog post that's on the street epistemology website. I'm not sure if you've seen it or not. Did I share no. it with you? No, it's, it's how to use street epistemology with loved ones. And one of the suggestions I have is if there are, t- if there are certain topics that are just too touchy, they're too sensitive. You don't have to use S E on that topic. You can just use it for other claims hmm. with the idea of how can we use this enough? So our kids start picking up on it. And we start being more discriminating about the things that we're accepting as true. And we're pushing back in a respectful way. When the teacher says something about about the age of the planet, maybe, or something along those lines, or maybe even something about vaccines or who the best person to vote for in the next election is, you can use these questions in those everyday situations and learn it. And maybe there is a subject that you're like, when it comes to religion, we just don't talk about it. We just, we have this mutual un- verbal a non-verbalized agreement that we just don't talk about it but if you use street epistemology enough and this is what i found for myself and i hear reports of this all the time and totally anecdotal but when you when you learn street epistemology because you're using it to challenge other people's claims you end up using it on your own self on your own claims so it would probably be in both of your best interests to learn this tool so when katie's alone and she's thinking about the article that she shared with you, maybe she'll start asking herself the questions that she's been asking or you've been asking her when she makes other claims, other non-religious claims. So you don't even have to use SE with Katie because she's already learned it. And now she's using it on her own core beliefs that are tied to her identity and very, she's very protective of them. And, and, and the same thing with Alan, he could be using those before he shares an article with you and he could be questioning and interrogating himself about it. I, I think that might be the best way to go about doing it. There, there's, there's, been this, there's been this interesting new development, though, that I think has a great potential for married people mm. or very close friends, coworkers, about street epistemology. Uh, there's this guy. He's got a channel called Campfire Convos, and he just started. I don't know if he's going to burn out in, in three days or what, or but he'll just be uploading videos forever. But he has a couple cameras set up in his backyard. He invited his sister over huh. and they sat down. They Did you see this one? They no, recorded I this no. conversation. Instead of him asking her these questions, he explained what street epistemology is. I think she watched a couple of videos. And there's a, there's a forum called Discord where there are other people familiar with this method. And she was willing to have other people ask the questions, uh, basically surface questions. He would pick one of them and ask it. So it wasn't like these were directed questions coming from him. Kind of detached. Yeah. 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 And I think the pressure was off of, this was his sister. I think he used it with. So she didn't feel like it was her brother picking on her with these really, really great questions, but it was this community. Mm. And uh, the other thing too, is there was this little bit of gap in between the time that he would ask the question and she would answer it. And before he 
received another question from the 30 or so people that were listening. And I think it gave her extra time to process the question that he just asked. So that might be a whole new exciting direction that you can go in if you are interested in using this approach, but that's complicated. There's a lot of setup. Right. <laughs> just, I, I think ideally just try to use it in your everyday claims that are non-religious or those, those minefield topics. I think in general, just the power of questions, if it's not a rigorous academic usage of SE, even just questions themselves, questions turn it back to, if I'm asking her a question, I'm interested in what she's saying. Yeah. And if I could separate it with, I'm going to lead her to the, to the conclusion that I want. Um, I think in, in general, questions are a, a, an extremely healthy way of having a conversation because it makes yeah. the other person's opinion matter. Um, and you're not just well, ranting your whole, your whole 15 minute chat. Mm-hmm. I think people, people like to feel heard and listened to and, you know, meet them where they're at and try not to drive them to a destination. Mm-hmm. Let them really be the driver in the entire thing. They're the driver who's agreeing to participate. They're the driver that can hit the brakes if they think it's going too fast. They're, they have the steering wheel and they're telling you where they're going and tr- put yourself in that, not maybe not even the passenger seat, the back seat. And you're asking, well, why did you turn that way? You know, is there any reason why you decided to make a right turn instead of a left? You're responding to what they're telling you. Uh, but again, don't overwhelm a person with too many questions either. That could be a really great way of, of short circuiting the whole thing. Yeah. You really want to just be slow and patient and repeat things back. Make sure you're understanding each other. Double check. Are you okay if I ask two more questions and then maybe we'll wrap it up for the night? Would that be okay? Yeah. I, one thing that Anthony does is he always asks someone, Hey, can you have an interview? And they say, sure. You say it's, I mean, I have a timer. I'm going to set it for four minutes. Yeah. And at the four minute mark, like that's it. And when you get to four minutes, uh, it, they never last only four minutes. No, <laughs> but right. when, when you get to four minutes, beeps. you always stop and you say, Hey, it's been four minutes. Do you, you want to keep, I don't there? always stop. Sometimes it beeps and I just keep going. Cause I don't, I barely even notice that it went off and they barely right. even notice. And we're just we're really into yeah. it. I don't know if, I don't know if I'm sure it's probably been done where people know each other and they're married and they've used a timer in these uh-huh. questions. I suppose you could do it. It kind of would be interesting to see if, we don't have a lot of good video examples of people who know each other using this method, right. which is another reason why I'm eager to talk to your audience because I would, I would love to hear anecdotes of people who are doing this with their loved ones and being able to see a video exchange of people dialoguing where they're using this approach and they know each other, they have a history, they love each other, they value their relationship. They've got kids running around while they're doing this t- the talk possibly that we don't, we don't have a lot of examples of that. We hear reports of people doing that, but nothing that we can actually watch. And I think that would be really useful to see. Oh, well, there's our next, uh, <laughs> our YouTube video. We're going to be YouTube the guinea channel. pigs for that. Maybe. I like, I like the thought of just saying, okay, I've got one or two more questions or timing it. And, mm-hmm. and it's, and I think too, um, because as you know, especially in a marriage, these things can just drag on and on. I mean, it could go on for hours. Yeah. And I no. think that, Keep I think short. that that's hard. That's, that's, that's just so draining for both of us. And totally. And, and, and I, you know, when I'm coming from a place of being defensive anyway, and, and Alan wants to bring up a, a pretty deep, deeply, held belief subject Mm -hmm. to me, the last thing I want is to sit and talk about it for two hours. Right. So, 
I mean, I like, I like the idea of just saying, okay, we're going to ask a couple questions or we're going to time it. And then we're going to let each other process it. Yeah. I think that's smart. Another idea just popped in my head and I've heard of people doing this. I don't know how feasible it is. I actually considered doing it when I was initiating talks where I actually thought about doing this with people who just talk, 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 and they don't let you finish of, of establishing some ground rules of, I'd like to ask you a question. And after I ask the question, I'm going to hand this object over to you. It could be the book of Mormon. It could be a, a teddy bear or whatever. And then we'll set a timer and then, I won't ask you anything else until you give me that object back. You can do that. So there's a couple of maybe little tricks that you can do to try to facilitate a back and yeah. forth dialogue. But I totally understand that you have this history. You have these emotions. You have these responsibilities. You have dependents who are depending yeah. on you getting along. So yeah, it's, re- it's really challenging with, with loved ones. It's, it's far more challenging than I think a one-off conversation that I might have with some random stranger on the street for 20 minutes, but making these marathon sessions where people are getting worn down and, and they're frazzled counterproductive. I think mm-hmm. I, I yeah. would do it in short, short little birth. We're standing in line for the, the groceries, the wife, that, that's an opportunity to engage with the person. You can keep it really brief. You can be teaching the method. And then, yeah, maybe when there's another time, you can be moving on to more serious topics. But again, I would keep it I think for 30 or for an hour or two hours is really a mistake when it comes to this topic with mm-hmm. this approach, I think. Mm-hmm. Short little bursts is yeah. my recommendation. Yeah. But multiple ones. And it doesn't always have to be the same person asking you the question. Mm-hmm. So maybe Alan has a friend or maybe you have a friend, Katie, who's interested in SE, who you, you can you can be maybe you're more comfortable with your friend asking these questions than you are with Alan. There's nothing wrong with that. And Alan, that might be more effective and more helpful for her. If there was a completely different person asking her these questions than you. Yeah. I want to role play for a second. (laughs) No, 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 no. no. So I, I I want to do this with your facial reactions are just, I I want to do this with, with Katie in mind, with our listeners in mind, and specifically one listener that just today uh, told me about a situation that happened. So let me take a step back. The three most common emails that we get are one, of course, spouse related of how do we make this work? Uh, two, actually probably the most, the most uh, common is kids. How do we make this work with kids? Yeah. We've actually found the kids to be deceptively easy to deal with this because we ask them questions of how they feel. We make sure that they know that we love each other, even though we feel differently. Mm-hmm. Um, they have not, we're lucky because our kids are young. The older they are, the harder this typically is when one spouse or parent comes out and says, I don't believe this anymore. The older the kids are, the more, um, don't want to use negative words, but the more into the belief they are, uh, more ingrained, more into the culture and everything. And so it's a little harder for them to grasp, but it's been super easy. The other is other loved ones, uh, family members. How do I tell my parents that my wife doesn't believe anymore, that my husband doesn't believe anymore? So one situation that happened today, and maybe we could role play a little bit, Anthony, you play the part of the S-ear. <laughs> you think you play that role well. And we'll play the role of um, the sister of a listener. So here's the situation. Uh, I had a listener today reach out and say that they're having a really hard time because her sister has expressed that she doesn't want her and her kids to come over to their house anymore because of 
the mixed faith marriage situation that her and her family are in. Mm. She's worried that her kids will be a, a bad influence over time yeah. uh, because some of them don't attend church anymore. They don't want the awkward situation that their yeah. mixed faith marriage brings into their home. So this listener really wasn't asking me for advice, but let's say that they were, they just wanted to explain that this was difficult. If you were with, let's say you're a good friend of both of these women and you were in front of the sister who has said, I don't, I believe that my sister with her family coming in are going to be a bad influence on us because, and the only reason there's no other baggage, the only reason is because you have left the LDS church. Mm -hmm. Like, how would you take an approach that way? Is that a fair question or is this a weird one? (laughs) It's not, it's not weird. And I actually don't think I even have to role play because this happened to me about three weeks ago with one of my family members. Wow. Really? Yes. Now she, they're not of the LDS church, but they are of a very fundamentalist evangelical Christian flavor. Uh, yeah. They left a church in Texas because it wasn't conservative enough for them. I think I'm not exactly sure, but in, in any event, one of the things that I was told is that we don't want you around our kids because of the influence that you could bring to this because you don't believe. So I can completely understand and sympathize with the situation. And here I am an atheist who doesn't believe. Um, so I, I, I get I can definitely sympathize with the theistic sister. Is that what it is? It's a theistic sister and her husband doesn't believe? Am I getting No, actually, right? it's, she doesn't believe. She doesn't. Her husband does. Oh, I see. And yeah. her sister is the one that does believe and does not want her and her right. family over anymore. Well, I think it's really important to respect people's boundaries. So if, if they don't want you around, it, it just doesn't seem like a good idea to push it. Now, the question comes down to, are we going to work out a compromise? It seems like there are some boundaries being set. Who's setting the boundaries? What are those boundaries going to be? Are we going to, are we going to meet three times a year for holidays and maybe a birthday here and there, but that's it. Is that going to be the boundary? Do you, uh, are you okay if we like meet at a restaurant? So there's a lot of chaos going around and maybe we, we won't be talking, have an opportunity to talk about these sensitive topics. There's, there's distractions. Right. I mean, maybe you can kind of work up, work up some compromises, but if they feel really strongly about it, I wouldn't push it. I, I so, really wouldn't. Okay. Yeah. I, so if I'm kind of an outside third party, I'm not the sister, I'm not the brother-in-law and I'm talking to this, to this person who I've known for quite some time. I mean, the first question that comes to mind is again, I, I'm not threatening the relationship cause I'm just, I'm just the outside party. But if uh, the first question that comes to mind is like, what are, what are you concerned will happen? Yeah. You, you mentioned that uh, there'll be a bad influence. What, what does a bad influence mean to you? You, you could do that, but I, I would ask them first if they're okay with you questioning their decision. Mm. Would you be willing to talk about this a little bit? We can sit down. Great it could be point. the two of us. There could be somebody else listening. We can set a timer. We can exchange a teddy bear. <laughs> you know, all those other little tips we talked about. Yeah. You, can, you can ask for permission to discuss it. And if, in my case they weren't even willing to discuss it with me really. Now right. it was interesting. You can't I actually, force it, but you can't force it at that point. You can't force it. I was able to use a little SE and I, I got to a really reflective point where this family member really seemed to think about what I'd asked them, but they're, they're really deep into it. And this is what they think is best for their family. And just like I would think that there's something best for my family that I, I really can't push too much against it other than, my my way of dealing with it was to take really detailed notes about what happened 
with the hope that maybe when their kids get 18, 19, 20, they start to question. Maybe they reach out to me. Maybe they see a video of mine if I'm still even alive then. Maybe I'll have an opportunity to explain to them that it was their parents that was that set that boundary and asked me not to cross it. And I was respecting their wishes. It wasn't because I don't love you. It wasn't because I don't love my, my, my sibling that, that set these rules up, for example. Um, that might be the only, the best thing that you can do and perhaps teach it, you know, turn it into a learning experience for your family. We can no longer go over to Aunt Jane's house today or for the rest of our life because they set these boundaries. They really think that their religion is true. I don't believe that this is true. Yes, mommy and the rest of you all think that it is, but the fact that, I, that I'm having questions or doubts is, is a problem for them. And we can talk about it if you like and, and maybe use it as an opportunity to talk about religion and how it can divide families. It can, it can mm-hmm. absolutely divide families. And sometimes to the point where people who are doing the division think that they're virtuous because they're making that delineation. Mm. I don't, I don't know exactly about the book of Mormon, but I, I'm pretty sure that there are some verses in, in the Bible that talk about that, uh, that it's virtuous, that Jesus came to divide families. And, and they, many people think that they're on solid footing for doing that, that they're virtuous for doing it. So it could be really devastating. I, I was I was torn up for a good three or four days. I, I'm barely able to describe to you what happened today, and this has been three weeks. Yeah, it's it's very very painful what these beliefs can do to us, and and the family these love these relationships that we treasure can be really set aside by the dogmatic views that we tend to hold. Which is why I'm such a proponent of this method because it seems to back people off of certainty. Mm. And dogmatism and being an ideologue for a particular outlook on life that can get in the way of love. Mm. Right. Right. That's a, I really like that. I think that. Thanks for sharing that. That's very <clears throat> personal to you. I appreciate that. This, the well, last, I was trying to be vague enough where. Yeah. It's not like this family member is probably going to ever discover anything that I well, hey, I was maybe they'll convert to Mormonism and then one of them will leave. And <laughs> maybe, yeah. Hey, oh, no, I, I think they probably have pretty strong views about Mormons. <laughs> I can't imagine. Well, one of the sad things about that entire exchange was that seven or eight years ago, when I first became out with my atheism, I was doing all the things that you might tend to see atheists do. And I don't know if you went through this, Alan, but lashing out at the loved ones, ridiculing their beliefs, giving them evidence to show that they're wrong. And just being being a jerk. Yeah. And my family members, the ones that drew these recent boundaries, they remember me from that person that I was seven or eight years ago. They haven't been paying attention to anything that I've been doing. They haven't been listening to my podcast or watching my videos and seeing the loving, beautiful, respectful conversations that we've been having. Mm. And that crushed me even further. Like, oh my gosh, they just know this old version of me. That was really, that was really uh, very saddening to me. Thank you for sharing something so personal, Anthony. I think Um, you can relate to that quite a bit, right? Yeah, I can. And 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 you you go through an angry atheist phase. Oh, absolutely. Um, You know, even before I was atheist, just angry atheist Mormonism, I guess you could Mm say. Absolutely. And I, and I, I still am in post Mormon groups and I see that anger come out in people and I completely get it and I completely understand it. I don't even tell people to stop it. I just tell them, this is natural. This is okay. Get past it as quickly as you can yeah. vent here when you need to. Uh, but there's, there's, there's healthy ways and unhealthy ways to, to handle this anger. 
And there's the, anger on both ends. I mean, anger for on sure, his part. Sure. Anger you on, feel betrayed. This isn't yeah. the person I married. Totally. Yeah. I mean, yeah. We, our listeners know, but you don't. We met as missionaries. That's how oh, we met. Where did the you first, meet? What's, what city or state? Were yeah, we, we went to Barcelona, Spain. And really? You met in Spain? The cool. first day that we met was our first day in the missionary training center, which is about 40 minutes south of here. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, you can imagine our, our, in, our whole relationship is tied to the church. And so that betrayal that she feels, uh, it's easy to forget that. I feel all sorts of betrayal, but then, you know, it's easy to forget that she's feeling it. And she's really the innocent bystander in all of this. Of course. It's changed she, even though I don't feel like I chose it. Yeah. It's happening to me. And she just has to sit there and take it. Yeah. Or perhaps even have to constantly explain to others why you're, I don't know if you go to the services or not, or if you, if you ditch those or what, it, it must be really tough to have to keep constantly explaining why your spouse doesn't believe it. Yeah. When, when you entered into an agreement, when your views were different, but our views change over time. Yeah. We're yeah. much different people than we were 10 years ago. I, I, f- I fully expect we're going to all be different in 10 years from now, but there's something about these beliefs in particular that are so foundational and a lot of marriages don't survive it. I, I'm honestly a little surprised that so many people can manage a mixed marriage when it comes to religious outlooks like that, especially if you both started believing it. Yeah, and that's that's the core of our listenership. is, yeah. And we've seen some marriages don't make it. Mm-hmm. Some marriages don't stay mixed faith for long. Other marriages, we've talked to people that have been mixed faith for 20 plus years, 30 plus years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wonder if they're just not talking about it. Is it the elephant in the room? And yeah, dad stays home while we all go to service and the kids are sort of scratching their head while he's staying home. And then maybe you have another sibling, a sibling who says, I'm going to stay home with dad today. I can imagine that could be, that could be really challenging. Yeah. We're, we're finding it and we're working through it. (laughs) I, I wanted to make a point about the example, the role play that we did, because this shows really well, get too much into it other than sort of no, venting no, about didn't. my personal situation. Sorry but, about that. No, but th- that's actually a perfect example because I went into this with the, th- with the feeling of Anthony's going to help me know what questions to ask to get this girl to get her head on straight and stop rejecting her sister, right? I think of stri- street epistemology as more of a weapon than I should many times that the, mm. these questions are weapons. And, and from what, what, what we should have called out at the very beginning is that one of the biggest strengths that I've seen uh, of yours, Anthony, in your videos is that the, not just what you say, but how you say it, you're, you're extremely non-assuming. You have a very good tone to your voice that is not threatening. I, you do so many interviews that I imagine you, you can't be, and if you are, you're a saint, and I use that term on purpose, <laughs> you can't be genuine every single question that you ask. But man, do they sound completely, completely genuine. I mean, you've, you sound so, so interested in who you're talking to at all times. I'm in sales and I have to fake it sometimes. And maybe it just comes more naturally to you. But anyway, that's a compliment to you. On, I appreciate on, that. It seems like your approach to street epistemology is not as a, as a weapon, but as a, as a method of conversation. I would try to approach, yeah, I would try to wield SE not as a weapon, but as coming from a place of wonder. I wonder why he believes that. 
how did he acquire this belief? How did it form? Has he ever questioned it? I'm genuinely curious about these beliefs yeah. that people are walking around with. So a lot of, a lot, most of it, I think, is sincere. There are some times where I hear the same explanation or a method, like sure. I take it on faith, and I, I, I have faith that the, the feeling that I received in my bosom was the Holy Spirit. And what's your definition of faith? And I, and they give a de- definition that maybe I've heard before. While on the surface, it might seem like it's the same old conversation. It rarely is. Yeah. There's all these different dynamics going, going through. Sometimes I even disclose where I stand on their claim if they want to know. And I say that I don't believe what you think is true and they open up even more. And that, that's kind of unexpected. So I've kind of learned to expect the unexpected. And in, in that, you just decide never to assume anything. Mm. Right. Right. And just so, go with it. So that's probably where a lot of the sincerity comes from is that I'm genuinely interested how they acquired it. How are they figuring out to maintain it? Is it testable? What would your life be like if you didn't have it anymore? I'm genuinely curious. Now, I do think it's helpful that I, I remind myself, and I've usually now these days I have three cameras on me. So I'm acutely aware that I am recording it and people are watching it and, and that type of thing. So I'm probably on a little bit more of my best behavior sure, because of that dynamic. But you yourself can just pretend that people are watching what you're talking about. Yeah. Pretend that your conversation is being recorded and, and notice the impact that it might have on the conversation that you have. You'd probably be on, you'd probably be more sincere and not in better behavior and it probably have better results to show for it. That's probably why our best mixed faith marriage moments are when we're recording the podcast. That, that very, <laughs> there very well may be something to that. Yeah. So everyone start your own mixed faith marriage podcast. That's our best <laughs> advice that we have for you. <laughs> or at least yeah. pretend that you have a podcast and go from there. Right. That's right. Has there been a, uh, a conversation? This is more of a, of a, and we're, we're just about at the time. I was going to ask this question, but go, yeah. ahead. go ahead. No, I like you. I want you to do it. Yeah. I, I mean, I think this, I know where you were going with this right. is, um, have you had conversations where you've been surprised or maybe it's like changed your position or your thought or. Yeah. That they, they were like, Oh, they actually did have some pretty reliable ways of knowing that this claim is true that right. you didn't otherwise believe. Well, when I talked to the Mormon missionaries the first time around and they said that they had the ability to test the book of Mormon, I was like, when I said it's testable, I, I had some sort of reaction where you probably noticed like surprise in my voice. I, I legitimately was, was surprised and encouraged that, that apparently this religion has a testing component to it. Now, what is the test? Is it a reliable test? Is it falsifiable? <laughs> right. Is sure. it is it defeasible in some way? We can get into that, but I was really excited to hear that. So that was a surprise. I, I've heard all sorts of different reasons why people believe things are the case. And I've heard some horrible reasons too. Atheists <laughs> oftentimes will give really bad reasons why they don't believe in a God. Uh, my mom was killed in a car accident when I was seven. And from that point on, I could just never believe it. Well, couldn't it still mean that the God is really true? Like, could you, could you be avoiding this, this truth claim because, because of this horrible event that happened in your life? So now if you're asking me if there's things that I've heard people say that they think are true, and then I've softened on my view or changed my position, there have been a few things that's happened. And I always try to approach every conversation I have from the point of view of, I might learn something and be so convinced that they have the truth that I have to adopt it. Because I do want to believe true things. Mm-hmm. Um, we can dig yeah. deeper into that if you'd like. I hope I don't know if that answers your question or not. 
Yeah, if, if there's something specific, that'd be that'd be great. But that that answer is good too. Yeah, I mean, I've heard I've heard some wacky things. Like at least they're wacky to me. Where somebody said that, oh, there was this one woman. I was actually I'm updating some of the thumbnails on my videos, and I stumbled across this one. I thought, ooh, if somebody asks me the next time I had an odd conversation that stood that stood out, and it was this woman who I met on a trail who said that she thinks that she has the ability to tell when people are going to die and she's a mm-hmm. nurse. So she could be walking the hall in the hospital at night and be walking by a room and she'll get a feeling or something and she'll get a sense that that person will, will die that night. And sure enough, the next morning she comes in and that person has died. So that was a little bit of an unusual belief. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a little different. And <laughs> I got the impression that she was a little sad that she had this ability that, that she oh, wow. kind of wished that she didn't have the ability. But anyways, we, we explored that. She's cursed with, with a gift. Yeah. Thank you so much, Anthony, for, for the time that you've given us already. Oh, yeah. I, I want to make helpful. sure that, that if there's something that you were hoping to cover that we didn't, um, and I, mm. I really, after we, we go there, and if there's nothing, that's completely fine. We'd love for you to talk a little bit about your trip out here to Utah. Yeah. That was the thing I was going to mention if you didn't bring it up. Yeah. yeah we to we definitely want to make sure everyone knows that you're coming out here. Yeah. So because I uploaded a couple examples where I ran into missionaries from the LDS church, I thought, you know, this is a good opportunity to finally go to Utah. I've been getting requests for the last few years. Would you please come to Utah, give a talk to, there's a Salt Lake City Oasis. There's a couple different Sunday assembly groups. I think there's four in Utah, if I'm not what mistaken. Is, what is Salt Lake City Oasis? Yeah. It is a gathering place for people. I th- I don't think it's exclusively for non-believers, but it's probably, uh, I would say, I'm guessing 90-10. I've, I've given talks to various oasises across the United States, <laughs> but Utah has four of them. One of them is in Salt Lake City. It's a gathering for people who don't believe. They have families, usually. Uh, that could be single too, I suppose. And they go to, it's just to go, it's just to go someplace on a, every Sunday. And they usually have daycare. You can bring your kids and uh, have all the, all the aspects that you normally get with religion. You might sing songs. They might bring in a speaker. You make a donation usually to support, to cover the rent of the place. Uh, there's usually a community moment where people get up and talk about something that maybe happened. They might bring in somebody to talk about science or the, the exploration of space. And it's just a weekly gathering, but but people have been on me. Can you please come to Utah? Maybe you can come during general conference. Wouldn't that be fun? You can talk to people. There's all these protesters that come out there. So I thought, well, hey, I just had these two talks with these with these LDS missionaries. Let me use this as an opportunity to raise some money to go out and give a talk, and maybe do some interviews too. And that's exactly what we did. We raised five thousand dollars in three weeks. I travel extremely lightly. I think we'll have a huge surplus to split between uh, making a donation to Salt Lake City Oasis and then the nonprofit that we started for street epistemology. We had so many people. There must have been 500 people that donated to that. Yeah. It was incredible. And uh, yeah, it was great. We Well, that's an exaggeration. So maybe 250 people or something <laughs> like that. But we had a lot of people that were really excited about bringing street epistemology to the Mormon and ex-Mormon community. And we're working out the details to make that happen. Sometime this year. That's awesome. So you'll be here around conference time. Is that what you said? It's going to be one of the two conference times. We haven't worked out the specifics yet. 
Great. Awesome. We hope it's yeah. the one in April. It would be very fun. We'd love What's to up? come and see you. Oh, just because it's sooner. They're only every six months. So we would love to have you here for the, oh, for yeah. the April conference versus the October conference. Yeah, there's yeah the, the other one's in October. I don't know. I mean, I, my preference would be to go in April because I think it would probably be a little warmer in Utah. Maybe. Yeah. Um, it is. April. Yeah, April, is, April compared to, yes. You might still get a little October, snow. Possibly. Yes. It yeah. could get snow in October. Uh, yeah. <laughs> or April. Or April. Yeah. or April. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. But we'll see. We'll we'll have to check our schedules and see what works best. This this coming conference, we I think we talked on Facebook Messenger as well. This coming conference is a little bit different as well because it's a 200 year anniversary of of Joseph Smith's uh-huh. first vision. So there's probably going to be increased activity around the conference center uh, mm. because of that. Both I, I'm more specifically thinking about more. Um, believers walking around uh, that may be willing yeah. to, to yeah i, I was yeah. pulling up some videos on youtube but most of the videos about general conference and youtube are uploaded by street preachers who set up outside and yell at everyone walking by yeah yeah and i, yeah. I kind of laughed at myself i was thinking here i am planning to go to utah and maybe talk to some people walking into general conference and here i am looking at street preacher videos to see what the layout is and how this would work uh, but right <laughs> I mean, I, I would really like to try to find a quiet spot. I want people who have time to really have a nice, meaningful conversation where I'm not yelling at them, screaming at them. I'm listening to them, but respectfully pushing back by asking challenging questions. Yeah, those street preachers can be very aggressive. And oh, yeah. they can. And I mean, I've been to the conference center when they've been there on this corner yelling things. Um, like waving garments, like Mormon garments around. Oh, it's been, stupid. I mean, it's very antagonistic. So yeah. That, not a great they, conversation. It, it's not exactly what is what you would be doing. It's so counterproductive. It is. They're doing way more harm than good, I think. And uh, I, I follow the street preacher community a little bit, not so much these days, but when I first started doing this, the first people I started talking to were street preachers here in San Antonio by the Alamo because mm-hmm. they were always out there. And they're so closed-minded, and they are intentionally t- trying to draw a crowd because they they think controversy and people yelling at them and gathering and uploading their pictures to social media, they see that as a success. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it is absolutely not. It's it's not effective. It's it's. Yeah. I don't exactly know what their motives are and and how they're determining what a success is, but I certainly wouldn't call it one. Yeah. Can you give us um, your website, any information that our listeners can go to to look for you and listen or read? My website? Yes. Your website or your email, anything that you want to give to our listeners so they can learn more about you. Okay. I'm on pretty much every platform that's out there with the exception of a couple. In fact, I just joined TikTok. So if anyone's uh-huh. on TikTok, I've okay. got a channel. I upload. In fact, I was thinking about taking the conversation with the two Mormon missionaries and putting that on there. Anyways, um, go to, I have a website, which is anthonymagnabosco.com. But if you just search for Anthony Street Epistemology on pretty much any platform, I think you'll probably find me. And I try to be accessible. It's a little harder these days because the videos are getting more attention. And a lot of people are reaching out, Mormons and ex-Mormons, in fact, a lot lately. Yeah, a lot of ex Mormons trying to give me advice about where to go when I go to Utah, and a lot of <laughs> current Mormons who want to pick up where I left off with the two Mormon missionaries because, <laughs> of course, they could have done a much better job than oh, the two. Oh, yes. Those poor elders. I know. 
I thought they did a great job, honestly, both of them. I, I did too. I, I thought they did really good. I watched both of the interviews and I thought they did yeah. great. <laughs> yeah. That was, oh man. Well, Anthony. So just, uh, just hit me up on social media. I'll try to engage with you. Or you can hit me up on social media if you like, or if you want to join one of the street epistemology communities that are on Discord or Reddit, mm-hmm. Facebook. And these are communities that are open to everybody, regardless of what you believe. So even if you're a Mormon, you can join this community and learn this approach. Maybe you have some concerns about it and you want to ask people questions about it or ask me about it. I'll, I'll try to answer any question that you have in a reasonable amount of time. I'm getting a little bit overwhelmed of late though. Just so you guys know uh, that are listening, I've only had, I mean, this we're very lucky to have Anthony on the podcast I've, and I've chatted with him a little bit on social media, but 99% of all the value that I've gotten from knowing of your existence has been on your YouTube channel, watching your interviews. Yeah. Um, I've learned a whole lot, uh, just as much from how you ask questions than what questions you ask. You've given me personally a lot to think about, and I think I still have a lot more to think about. So personally, uh, forget that we're recording a podcast. I just want to say thank you. I've been watching you for over a year probably almost two years now and, oh, and wonderful. really, really, really enjoy what you do. I appreciate that. And I, I think watching the videos is a really, it's, it's the best way other than maybe listening to me talk about it, go watch a couple of videos, watch five to 10 of them. So you get a good broad mix of claims and different approaches, different styles, and maybe watch some of the more recent stuff. Don't go back to 2015 or 14. Maybe. <laughs> stay, stay within 2019 or, or, or 2018 possibly, but yeah, I think watching the exchanges, and if it's too difficult for you to watch somebody use street epistemology on Mormonism, pick up, watch an example of us using it with, with a Muslim or, or some, a different Christian denomination or a completely different topic like ghosts or something. That's right. We are, we are big proponents of encouraging ourselves in our marriage and our listeners in their marriage to, to try new things, to see um, how you react to certain thing and things. And it's okay to try something and say, yeah, I'm not comfortable with that, or I'm not ready for that. Mm. I stopped going to church for nine months and now I'm back going for the first hour. It's two hours long. And I go for the first hour oh. and I don't know if that will stick for any amount of time. I'm probably going to stop sometime soon. We'll see, but uh, it's okay. You You can try new things. You can. So if you want to go and watch, we would recommend everybody go and watch one of these interviews you can very easily tell by the thumbnail what the video is about and yeah. see if street epistemology is something that, that uh, is, is helpful for you because it has been for me. Yeah. And maybe even ask yourself, like watch a couple of street epistemology videos and then ask yourself, and then maybe watch a couple of traditional theist versus atheist arguments and then ask yourself which approach you would prefer somebody use on your loved one. Mm. And maybe your answer is neither. <laughs> like, don't I don't want to talk about it. But in the pursuit of in the in the pursuit of truth, and in the interest of a partnership and trying to work together to figure things out, what's best for the family, and and all those other things, maybe give it a try. Try it on some of the more safer topics, and then try to expand it from there, perhaps. Love it. Thank you so much for taking the time to meet with us tonight. You are welcome. You are both lovely, and I'm so glad to have chatted with you tonight. This is really great. We're going to see that it was better that we grew up together. Tell me you don't want to leave, because if change is what you need, 
You can change right next to me. When you're high, I'll take the lows. You can ebb and I can flow. We'll take it slow and grow as we go. We go.